Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. And if you like the show to the point that you'd pay to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one now available for order in our online store at autofocuslit.com books. This is perhaps the best way to support us right now. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Our episode of The Lives of Writers today is hosted by Aaron Slaughter. Aaron Slaughter is the author of the short story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us, and the poetry collections, The Sorrow Festival, and I Will Tell This Story to the Sun Until You Realize That You Are the Sun. She is the managing editor of our online journal, Autofocus, and was formerly the editor co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook press, The Hunger. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Aaron in conversation with Dan O'Brien. Dan O'Brien is a playwright, poet, and essayist whose books include the poetry collection, Art Cancers, and the nonfiction work, A Story That Happens. His newest poetry collection, A Survivor's Notebook, is out today from Anchor Books. And both his lyrical memoir, From Scarsdale, A Childhood, and a new collection of plays, True Story, A Trilogy, are out in just over a week from Dalkey Archive Press. All right. Let's get to it. This is Aaron Slaughter's conversation with Dan O'Brien. Well, uh, you know, we woke, we got in very late last night to Sewanee, Tennessee. Uh, we were from San Francisco. I went to a friend's wedding in Carmel. So it was a long day. We drove from Carmel about two hours to San Francisco. Then the flight was delayed, of course, and then flew to. Um, Nashville, where of course our luggage was lost. Oh gosh, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's okay. I think it's turning up at some point today. Um, and then it's another drive. You know, Nashville to Sewanee is about two hours, uh, and we've got a nine-year-old daughter, so she was very hungry. We were all hungry, um, but she was very cranky and very hungry. And we finally got in around um, ten or eleven last night. And then today, today's been pretty relaxed. The first day, I've been coming to the Sewanee Writers Conference as a playwriting faculty for 20 years not every summer but my first summer was 20 years ago and uh so i'm kind of used to the things have changed but the schedule is kind of the same the first day the faculty get get here a little bit earlier and we have a little orientation and you you sort of see old friends or meet new faculty and uh, do a lot of reading because we start our workshops part of the the conferences you have uh playwriting fiction nonfiction, or poetry workshops and so um, if you're leading a workshop, like I am co-leading a workshop, there's a lot of scripts to read. So today is kind of recover from travel and read a lot of scripts and drink a lot of coffee. 
Yeah, that sounds lovely. Does it feel a little bit, I've heard about Sewanee that it feels a little bit like summer camp for grown-up writers. Yes, yes. Does, does it have that feeling for you? Yes, completely. It's definitely, a, it feels like writer's camp. And I never, did you go to camp as a kid? I never went away, like sleepaway I did. Camp. I, I went did. to a, okay. a horse camp in Texas. <laughs> oh, that summers. sounds good. My daughter would love that because she's obsessed with horses. Did she you, probably would. It was a wild you, time. <laughs> did you go for weeks? Like, was it like several weeks? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, so the first year I went, I went just for one week as a camper. I think I was 13. Right. And then the second summer I was 14 and I went as what was called a junior counselor, mm-hmm. um, which is basically just like, you're old enough to give us free labor now. <laughs> and I went for two months. Um, and of course lied to everyone about my age and had a lot of very wild experiences. That, right. Uh, <laughs> right. But yes, you should send your daughter probably to some horse camp. I'm sure that they'll. I think yeah. I think next summer because she's nine now. I think next summer she's she's been talking about wanting to go next summer and a horse camp. I think would be her first choice. Um, but no, Sawani. Yeah, if you've ever been to like a writers conference, um, it, it is writers. It is camp for for grownups. You know, I mean, I guess it's sort of also like any conference or symposium might be in any field but you know writers it's an interesting blend of a lot of professional work goes on but it's also a conference in the sense of conferring like just talking and hanging out being a southern conference there's like a cocktail party every five minutes it yep. seems like you know <laughs> um so it, uh and and you know all the money for the Sewanee conference comes from the tennessee williams estate so it's got it's got this history of, of tennessee williams who of course was was a bit of a drinker um you know, 20 years ago, I, I probably, um, you know, indulged a lot more than I do now. I don't know how I did it actually 20 years ago between preparing for workshop, going to readings, lectures, giving lectures, uh, socializing at every meal, and then staying up late partying. It can be really exhausting. You know? Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little bit like graduate school. I don't know if that was your yeah. experience, but it, it also was sort of like, well, how do you how do you do yeah. that? But you do it somehow. Exactly. <laughs> On and, no sleep. And, and I think it's sort of like, um, yeah, and I think people are even more motivated to do it because it's only for 12 days and maybe the rest of the year or most of the year, you know, being a writer can be pretty lonely and isolating. So this is like your chance to meet as many people as you can. And, you know, so um so it's kind of great, but it is it is an intense experience. Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue into um, something that I wanted to ask you because, you know, writing is such a not only intensely personal, um, but often pretty isolating, stationary experience, right? Um, you know, when you were growing up, when you were a kid, how did you find your way to reading and writing? And then what was it like for you once you discovered there was a writing community to join and, and you had people with that interest in common? You know, I, the writing came pretty early for me, probably just because I was lucky in terms of, of um, you know, go, I went to a public school, but it was a very good public school in an affluent suburb of New York named Scarsdale. I, I, my family was not affluent, and I think that's part of, part of, you know, I think many artists, many writers feel somewhat other from their environment when they're growing up and probably for the rest of their lives, and it gives them a certain perspective and a certain self-consciousness and self-awareness. Um, so I'm sure that was a factor for me. My father um, grew up the son of an Irish plumber in Scarsdale. So he was also from Scarsdale. But but most of that town is very affluent. So a lot of my friends were very well off. And as, as a result, the schools were very good. So, uh, you know, I was exposed to, um, to literature, uh, capital L literature at a young age. 
And I must have heard, I know I heard at a young age that I just sort of responses from teachers and from parents that, that I had a talent for it. And I'm sure that that mattered. Um, I heard it from my own family. You know, my mother was, I write a bit about this in my memoir. My mother was at least always telling me at the time that she was a frustrated writer herself, that she, um, she loved reading. Uh, and she, always talked about how she could have been a writer or maybe she would one day be a writer, that sort of thing. And would often say to me, you know, um, Oh, Danny, you've, you know, you've got that, you've got the talent or whatever, you know? Um, so whether that was imposed on me or if it was confirming my own instincts, probably a combination of both. Uh, but pretty early on, I felt like, I felt like writing was part of my identity, um, more than even just an activity. So, um, so I started young and it was really, it, but it, it, the, the urge or the practice didn't really crystallize until, uh, until I had some trauma really in my childhood, which is another common, I have this theory and it's not, I'm sure an original, uh, or interesting theory, but you know, so many writers I read about or writers I know, probably this is true of artists in general, there seems to be some formative trauma around, especially around like the age of 11, 12 Somewhere in there seems to be the sweet spot for, um, you know, getting uh, dislodged from your life to a certain degree. And uh, that was the case for me. My older brother, he, he was about five years older than me, and he was suffering from serious depression. And uh, I witnessed his, um, you know, um, I should give a content warning, but I did witness the immediate aftermath of his attempted suicide. And it was really from that point on that writing, you know, maybe not right away, but pretty soon after writing became a kind of self-therapy, I guess. It was a way for me to, to try to make sense of what had happened, what was happening to my family. Um, you know, around that time, probably for related reasons, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was also writing was a way for me to try to understand what was happening to me in terms of my emotions and my psychology, you know? Um, so that's when I probably 12, 13, 14, I felt like I started to write very serious, but probably very bad poems. That's that's where it As started. As we all do. <laughs> As we all do. Yeah. I'm sure they're very bad. They were very bad poems. Um, and then, and then your second part of the question was when I first started to, I guess, find community with other writers and come out of that sort of isolated experience of writing. Yeah, interestingly, I think it was the theater for me was the most immediate way. I mean, I, I first started writing poetry again, like I said, as a, as a young young person and went to college wanting to, knowing I wanted to be a writer. I uh, didn't know if I meant I'd be a poet or even maybe a novelist or short story writer. Um, but I also had this impulse to perform. I loved acting. I loved um, directing. and But I didn't really get to do much of it in high school. I think I was afraid to, I was pretending to be like a jock or something in high school <laughs> and it was college when I, for whatever reason, felt like I could and committed to it. And so theater was a way that I felt like I was expressing myself in a literary way because I was, I would also write things as well. But uh, you have a built-in community in the theater, you know, you just, which is what's wonderful about it. Um, so I was doing both in college. I would write poems, but I was also acting in plays. And but I still at that point had no idea how you became a quote unquote professional writer. You know, um, it helped to have some 
professors in college who who were published novelists and poets and uh you know i began to get a sense from them that that there is no one way to do it you know i began to get a sense of certain perhaps trails to follow you know um and you know for me a big formative experience was going to the Breadloaf Writers Conference, which is, Sewanee's kind of modeled on Breadloaf. Breadloaf is the oldest writers conference, I think, in the country. Um, and I went, because I was an undergrad at Middlebury College, which is where Breadloaf is, is Breadloaf is part of Middlebury. Um, I was able to kind of sneak in the back door. They had a certain number of uh, slots for Middlebury students to go. And I went the summer of 94, I think, 1994, Spoke to like no one, completely terrified and intimidated, you know. Um, but that was where I really started to see uh, people that were actually writing now. You know, when you're in school, you can feel like you read a lot of writers that either seem super famous or they're or they're dead or whatever, you know. And these were these were just people, and that was kind of um, that was just kind of great to see how they were doing it and how and, and in different ways, different paths again. Um, that that the writers had taken to get to wherever they were, you know. Um, was there some formative experience from Breadloaf or from around that time that kind of where it clicked for you of like, oh, I could also be doing this. Like I could be a peer with this person. I don't know. It seems pretty incremental, you know. I um, Probably the playwriting gave me the most confidence because it, the feedback is so immediate with a play, you know. Um, so if an audience responds to your work, if the play, like a player wrote in college, won this Kennedy Center College Playwriting Award. So, you know, that really, for better or for worse, did set me on a, on a course towards playwriting for a number of years. I mean, I'm still a playwright, but I would say the first 10 years of being a quote unquote writer, I was writing more plays than anything else. Um, so, you know, it was very, I mean, Got to be 22 and to, to see your own play that you wrote and directed and that you're acting in, not the, not the lead, a smaller part, but I was acting in it, to perform that play at the Kennedy Center at 22. And again, it was published as part of that award. And sometimes people show me the play. They say, oh, would you sign this play? And, and it, it makes me feel miserable because I don't think it's a very good play. But it was, you know, it was pretty good for a 22-year-old. And uh, it was incredibly affirming, you know, to have that um, to have that reaction from from people. Uh, yeah, something that I found so interesting about your plays is that they're written in a, a poetic style. You're using space on the page in some really fun ways. Um, you're using those like good poetic techniques, like enjambment and line breaks, and um, you know, organization to give the actual reading of the play a sort of dramatic timing. Um, so when you're writing plays, do you think of, you know, maybe you're thinking of both, but do you think primarily of how they're going to be read on the page or how they're going to be performed or what's the middle ground there? It's kind of both in the sense that, I mean, I should say that for years I didn't write plays in verse. And then something happened to me about 10 years ago where suddenly that seemed like a good idea. And I'm not sure if it was, but that's what happened to me. And it was around the time when I was disowned by my birth family and a lot of things were changing sort of internally and externally probably. And, 
and I was writing specifically about a, a certain subject with somebody, this war reporter named Paul Watson. I was trying to write about his life. And suddenly the kind of column of not really blank verse, it's really a syllabic line of verse. Some people have read it and they're like, oh, it's iambic pentameter. And it's not that fancy because uh, it would have been much harder to write it that way. It really is just a 10 syllable line. But there's something about, like you say, the line break, what that could do for me in terms of implying subtext and irony to a line of dialogue or monologue, I found really intriguing. It forced me to think in terms of compression. You know, when I was writing about Paul Watson, this war reporter, you know, he had lived 25 years in war zones around the world. And I was overwhelmed, not just by the amount of experience he'd had, but the intensity of the experience. And so some part of me needed that that 10 syllable line. And again, thinking with each line, hopefully each line is doing something new. It could be very subtle, but you know, that type of economy and precision or that goal of, of economy and precision just felt like that was my only way through the material. You know, there was, there was no other way I could really tell his story. Um, and so that kind of got me writing that when I've written several plays in that style uh, for a while. I think I'm somewhat moving out of it. I don't know if I'm ready to go back to standard playwriting format. I should say, you know, when I was younger, so, you know, after college, I went to Ireland for a year where I kind of studied um, Irish theater, but really just kind of acted and wrote. And then I came back and went to grad school at Brown. And Brown University, at least at the time, I think it's still true, you know, they really encouraged playwrights to write, um, to break rules or to find their own rules and to to be as experimental or idiosyncratic as 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 felt natural to them, you know. Um, so placement on the page was encouraged, more, almost like, you know, a play at Brown and many plays today, it's almost like looking at a page of free verse or something, you know. Um, so I've always been more interested in that. You know, nothing gives me, um, you know, a, a more feeling of chest pains than like the final draft software template for playwriting, you know, cause it's just so standardized and it makes me feel very, um, I don't know, claustrophobic. So yeah, I, you know, I try, I try to think it's kind of one hand theatrical, one hand the language. And because I do love things that are quote unquote literary and literary can sort of be a pejorative in the theater world for a lot of people. Um, so it's kind of, it's tricky, you know, obviously I've probably written this way and I've certainly seen plays that feel like they're too literary and not enough is truly happening in the way a play needs to happen for an audience. Um, they feel more like, uh, well, you know how it is. A poetry reading can be the most amazing poetry reading in the world, but after about what, 30, 45 minutes, your brain can't really take much more, you know? So but if you've got like a two-hour poetry reading that's calling itself a play, that can be really difficult for an audience. Um, yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, as a child, you found yourself writing poetry to sort of work through trauma that you had experienced and that you were currently, you know, going through at the time. And then, you, you know, after having the separation from your family, then writing plays in verse, do you feel like there's something about poetry specifically that allows you to you know, access those more difficult, uh, maybe like more emotionally raw subjects? Is there, you know, something in the form that makes that more accessible for you as a writer? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I'm giving a lecture here next week about the confessional poets, 
because those are the poets that I found around the age of 12 or 13, 14 that made me want to write poetry, really, or serious poetry. And uh, like it was, I think, or is for many so-called confessional poets, um, you know, poetry is very intimate, very personal for me, very revealing. Um, I'm probably drawn more to poetry like that, you know, and it's not a value judgment about other types of poetry for other people. But for me, it's really important that I feel like what, you know, what's, what's at stake for the, for the writer. I don't need to know explicitly what's at stake, but I want to feel what's at stake and why it needs to be written for this writer, what they're trying to, to, um, I mean, uh, well, I also think like, like for the, for a playwright, a monologue is all about, it can be a soliloquy, right? Where characters talking to themselves but it's all about what the internal conflict, what they're trying to figure out about themselves. And, and usually the monologue is not finished until there's been some change. There's been some realization, some shift, some epiphany, you know, something major. And I think that way about the poems um, that I write, too. I also feel like the writing of, of poetry is less conscious for me, at least in the rough draft phase. So it is rawer in that sense or more immediate. Um, you know, I, I like to feel... Um, yeah, that, that it's not that the poem is not something that's con, that's not constructed so much. I revise like crazy, but the initial impulse has to kind of come from a place that feels somewhat eerie, somewhat uh, you know whether it's uncanny, unconsciousness, or something else. I don't know. It could be a spiritual ele element. Um, so yeah, I do think of poems as like almost like the seed. Often I'll be writing poetry that then becomes. A character in a play or become some element of a play or when i was a younger writer i wrote more short fiction and it was a similar thing where the poems would kind of somehow feed into uh, fiction and might eventually feed into a play and become a play um and actually i guess i've never stopped doing that because the the book i wrote a collection of poetry about paul watson called war reporter and that actually grew out of a play about him first so i wrote a play about him called the body of an american I finished that play and I just felt like I hadn't finished with his story. And I felt like I needed another genre to get at aspects of his story that I couldn't really get at in the play. Uh, and then a composer became interested in and we wrote an experimental opera about it uh, based on the play and the poems. Uh, and then I wrote a second collection of poems about him and came back to writing another play about him. Um, the memoir that's coming out now is a prose memoir, but I'd previously written a play that's called A Memoir for the Stage. Um, years before that, I published a collection of poetry that is about my family. So, you know, part of that is being an obsessive compulsive type person, probably. <laughs> but it's uh, also, you know, this feeling that I want to get at. I don't know. I want to get at my subjects from different angles, you know, and try to really uh, understand them. Yeah, yeah that, that seems to be a really big benefit to being a multi-genre writer, um, that you can have that fluidity in your process and you can, you know, if you become obsessed with something or you become, you know, really interested in a topic or moment or person, um, you can kind of, yeah, attack it from all angles, use all forms to sort of work that out. Does that yeah. feel right to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And also part of it is also, I don't always know, and I love this, I've always felt this way, like I don't always I don't feel comfortable necessarily knowing where the line is between one genre and another. 
And I'm actually most excited feeling like I'm kind of in between genres. So like you said, you know, these plays that I've written in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, they're, they're plays in verse. The, um, at least the poetry collections about Paul Watson are kind of close to dramatic monologue. Um, you know, so they're, the, the, my new prose poetry collection, they're prose poems, which are, you know, a hybrid form with my photographs as part of the book, about 30 of my photographs. So I just, I've always, I don't know, anytime I feel like I can categorize something of my own and probably of other people's, I'm a little less interested, you know? I, I love that. I, so I also am a multi-genre writer and uh, this might be a function of my particular circle or academia, maybe in general. Um, but I have encountered this idea that you have to pick one and get good at that. Right. Um, or you have to, you know, it's, I used to say for many years, I don't know if I still believe this, but that sort of, you know, it's all just like words and a feeling and it, you put it in different boxes depending on what it demands. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that that, that seems like it's a really big benefit to have that in your process, have that fluidity, um, have those different tools that you can apply to different genres from other genres. And I know that you have a background in comedy too, right? So I listened to another interview where you mentioned that you met your wife, the actress Jessica St. Clair, um, at an improv class. And as it's interesting because comedy and poetry in some ways go very well together, but poetry is seen by a lot of people, especially non-writers and readers of poetry, as this very serious or maybe even like depressing medium. Yes. Um, so how do you feel like, do, you, do your comedic instincts and your love of comedy, does that come into your poetry at all um, or vice versa? For sure. I mean, I, this, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because when I tell, like when I tell our daughter that I used to be funny – she doesn't believe me uh, because because when I was an actor, I did lots of comedies and, and, and dramas, but I, I, I was a student actor, but I was pretty good at comic uh, performance, I think. And my wife and I did meet in, in, we were actually in an improv performance group together. And she went on to do that professionally. And she's kind of parlayed her improv experience into TV and, and film acting. Um, and whereas after college, I didn't really pursue uh, acting for very long. Um, but no, I well, a bunch of things. Many of my plays are on the surface dramas and maybe even depressing. But <laughs> when a director <laughs> says to me, you know, I think, and usually they whisper it, they say, like, you know, I think this is actually kind of funny. And I, <laughs> and I say, yes, like that's that they that tells me that they get it, that there's a layer of irony or, or I guess darker humor or something that is important to the story. It's just my voice, but I do think it ends up leavening some of the heaviness of the plays. Even the plays about Paul Watson, which are very heavy. He's witnessed some of the worst wartime atrocities of the last 30 years and the play talks about them, but there are elements of comedy in the play um, that I think an audience needs in order to, to really sort of uh, experience the full story. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is important. I've, I mean, I've certainly written things like my previous poetry collection before this was about or derived from the experience of my wife and I having pretty much simultaneous cancers. She was treated uh, for stage two breast cancer. And then on her final day of treatment, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. So we had a year and a half uh, medical odyssey. Um, you know, knock on wood, we are both cancer free right now. Um that book is probably not that funny, 
Uh, but there's there's a few poems. Actually, that's not true. There's one poem in there. There's sort of fragments more than poems. But there's a little fragment in there that I think is kind of humorous about. It was a memory I had. These were poems that sort of came to me during treatment. Um, and one of the memories that came to me that felt important was when I was 22, that play I had written that went to the Kennedy Center was called The Last Supper Restoration. And it had something to do with the Last Supper painting. Uh, da Vinci's painting. And when I was 23 uh, and spending my year in Ireland, I had enough money to cobble together a trip to go see it, to go see the Last Supper painting. And I ran out of money. So I literally had, I was standing outside of Santa Maria della Grazia, if I'm saying that correctly. uh, And I had enough money for, I'd either choose between like a Big Mac which is all I'd be able to eat for like the next 12 hours before my flight home or see the last supper. And I thought at the time I thought it was hilarious that it was, it was called the last supper and I'm eating a big Mac. <laughs> so what I ended up doing was having the, you know, the hamburger outside the Santa Maria de la Grazia. But I kind of loved that even then. Cause I felt like, you know, that's not the point. Like what the point of that painting was what it meant to me in my imagination in a way, you know, and symbolically and metaphorically, and that's kind of why I hope it's in the book that came out a few years ago. Um, so yeah, so comedy keeps, I, I would say the, the most recent, the one that's coming out in September, um, it's called Survivor's Notebook, and it's a, it's derived closely from the first few years post-treatment. And in that period, and I'm still in it now, it was kind of a reawakening to, um, to life and to connection. And for me, that as a as an Irish American, uh, life and connection is very talkative. So I wanted to talk. So the prose poems, again, are close to dramatic monologue. Um, they're deceptively maybe conversational um, because some of, you know, I've revised the hell out of them and I want them to have a certain heightened music. But I also wanted the structure to feel almost improvised at times and some of them to be to be funny and entertaining to to a certain degree, you know. But no, my wife, my wife likes to say she likes because she's the funny one. She does love it gives her like street cred in the comedy world to say, oh, here's my husband, the poet. She like leaves out the playwright part because that sounds too show business. Mm -hmm. But to say the poet sounds like, you know, I don't know what she does. Like she's got a serious, (laughs) poor, very poor uh, spouse or something. What is that like for you when you go to like LA industry parties and then you tell people that you're a professional poet? What are some of the responses that you get from people? You know, I'm sort of used to it by now, but the first few years, so we lived in New York till about 2008. So my wife was doing a lot of comedy improv. I was doing lots of theater. And at a certain point we realized, okay, I was teaching too, but we realized, you know, I would either have to commit to the, becoming a professor and probably traveling around for a while, and which would affect her career, or she would have to get more work in TV and film, which would mean moving to L.A. Um, so we opted for that one because also because we realized that was a better chance of making enough money to have a kid and, you know, who knows. So, and also I didn't want to, I didn't love the idea of feeling like I had to stay in New York. Like I loved living in New York, but I also wanted to feel like I could go anywhere to write. You know, I think, I think there are good reasons to stay in New York in some ways, uh, as a playwright, especially, but, um, 
So that's why I went with it. But those first few years, it was interesting how we would go to parties with, with, you know, most of her friends were actors, comedy people who had made the move from New York to LA. And they would, they would look at me like um, with a, a mixture of, if they found out I wrote poetry, if I said I was a playwright, they would say, oh, do you write for TV? Because a lot of playwrights do. And if you move to LA and you're a playwright, they assume you're, you want to do that. And I'd say, well, not, no, I don't. And then, they, and then I'd say, actually, I've been, I'm writing poetry too. Uh, they would look at me with a mixture of, of um, like admiration and pity. The, <laughs> on one hand, they looked at me like, oh, he's a, he's, this is a serious writer. And then also kind of quizzical, like, but why? Why would you do that? Um, so, and I think I've gotten used to it. And I don't know if I notice it as much anymore. But yeah, I did notice that at first. Um, and I don't know why people don't ask me as much anymore. For a while, I felt like I was meeting people that would say, like, how much, how do you earn a living? How do you make money as a poet? And at a certain point, if I didn't know them, I would just outright lie. I would just say, well, you know, it's like low six figures. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're average poet starting out low six figures. And um, most people knew I was, you know, taking the piss as the Irish would say. How great would that be, though, to just like go to the poetry staffing center and then get your yeah, exactly, salary exactly. for poetry? You'd be a temp. You could be you temp as a uh, poet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience here. Do you feel like when you tell people you're a poet, they maybe don't know how to follow that up or what to do with that because a lot of people aren't readers of poetry? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's a big part of it because no matter who you talk to, right? So few people actually read poetry. The, the, probably all people have that mixture of uh, that feeling of like, oh, this person is serious, maybe smart, but also maybe deluded or, you know, uh, or, or mentally ill or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I, I think that must be part of it for sure. edit this out Michael but um I uh in college one of my best friends uh from childhood at the time we went to the same college and we would watch Playing House together so I was a very big fan of Jessica's oh my goodness. um we loved that show we would quote it to each other all the time oh, that's great. um and so th- th- that connection when I learned th- that she was your partner that was exciting oh, for me good. so um but I wanted to tell you that <laughs> Oh, but I was going to say, and you reminded me of my my little brain fart that I had because I wanted okay. to sort of what you said earlier made me think about maybe just the poetry and the TV world, just how Jessica and I, you know, in some ways we do inhabit such different art forms or work in such different art forms, but maybe just because we're married, but we're, we're able to see the overlap too, you know, and there's an it, it, we're completely aware that like a best selling or a decently selling poetry collection is like 500 copies and a decent TV show maybe gets 500,000 viewers or something. So there's a different order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, different in terms of the numbers of people and in terms of the money then that you can earn, of course. Um, but in terms of, you know, what, what you're doing as an artist and what you're risking of yourself. I mean, speaking of playing house, my wife's TV show, you know, when she was diagnosed uh, with, with breast cancer, she was diagnosed before I was, I remember speaking to her very early on and saying, you know, one of, you know, one of the feelings you have when you're diagnosed with something like that is, what do I do? What can I do? 
what can I control? This thing is happening to me. And, you know, going back to my childhood, my response was always, well, let's try to make some art out of it. It may not, it may not fix anything. It may not change anything in the long run, but it might help us through it, you know? So pretty early in that process, she knew she wanted to write that third season of that TV show where her character would go through some version of what she went through, you know, with breast cancer. Um, and, and it was a real gift to us both. And, and then I, of course, did the same in terms of writing about it uh, with uh, poetry and plays. And we were able to help each other, you know, just emotionally through that experience, how vulnerable that makes you feel, even though we still feel like it was the right and the best thing to do for us. Um, you know, it can still be a very vulnerable experience to put those stories out there. And she did it so soon after her treatment. I mean, that's pretty amazing to me. Uh, I was writing during that time, but, you know, I didn't publish that book, Our Cancers, until 2021. So that was about five, six years after we retreated. Um, you know, she she was writing it. And within six months of finishing treatment, she was filming, I think, part of it. And, you know, casting actors to play a version of her oncologist. And, you know, it was kind of amazing to see how quickly she was able to transform her experience um, into comedy. You know, it had some yeah. serious or heavy elements to it, but it was certainly meant to be still funny and entertaining, you know? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like it would be, there's always, I think, a little bit of dark humor around the most difficult experiences that we have as people. And it sounds like that might uh, maybe bring that to the forefront if as these, almost as these things are happening, almost simultaneously, she's also thinking about how they might be, you know, transferred into comedy and casting and, right. um that's that sounds like uh, one of the best ways that you might be able to deal with something yeah. that horrible. Yeah, right? it gives you it gives you something to control, and you're making something, you're finding meaning of some kind in the experience. I mean, that's really central to how I think about writing. From again, since I was a kid, you know, with what happened with my brother and my family, it was it was that feeling of how do I take this chaos of something traumatic, uh, something that just feels destructive. And how can I feel, at least even if it's just an illusion, how can I feel like I'm making not just something beautiful? I mean, beauty for me in art, it's more about meaning. You know what I mean? It's more about how can I make some sense of what has happened to myself or to my characters and um, and create some. And that's a kind of form of aesthetic beauty for me. And uh, even if it's just helping you through through the experience, you know. Yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, because you're both uh, creatives, you're both writers, but in pretty different formats. Do you have any sort of collaborative process? Like, do you share drafts of poems with Jessica or does she, you know, share scripts with you to sort of look at and critique? Um, and how do you balance your, you know, individual creative processes of generating the thing and sort of babying the thing for however long you need to yeah. and then sharing it and accepting critique, which, you know, can sometimes be personal in the most removed circumstances, but this is, you know, your partner um, and you have a young child. So you have to each kind of, I guess, carve out that space. Right. So what does that look like in your creative lives? You know, sometimes we share things early on, but I, I would say most of the time we kind of work away on our own stuff until a certain point, um, maybe fairly late in the process. You know, it depends when Jessica, Jessica had her first TV show was called that she created was called uh, BFF as in Best Friends Forever. And it was very short-lived, but it was on NBC, I think in 2011, maybe. 
Uh, that was her first. So she had done improv for many years, but she never actually written something. So this was a, a, a show that she wrote with her comedy partner, her writing partner, Lennon Parham, who's also um, playing house, her co-star and co-creator of that show. And I remember with the first show, BFF, they did come to me at a certain point and they were like, Dan, can you explain to us, you know, inciting incident or, you know, what makes a scene climax? Like what is just asking almost dramaturgical questions. Um, so for a very short window of time, I was I felt like I was their drama guru. You know, um, it didn't last long because they 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 knew what they were doing uh, and probably didn't need me at all even at that point. Because improv, to be a good improviser, I think you have to have a really good sense of, of, of you know, certainly scene structure. Um, and they, so they were quickly writing fantastic scripts. Um, so, you know, and they have a very particular way of working where they uh, improvise, they really improvise their first drafts uh, and take transcripts and then shape the transcripts into scenes, into written scenes. Um, so they have a very particular way of working. So, you know, she doesn't necessarily f- show me pages until they've got something together, you know. Um, and I'm kind of the same way. Like maybe it's, again, that idea of especially poetry being so intimate and private for me that I, I, it, 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 even sharing with a loved one, it can kind of lose its magic a little bit. Do you know what I mean? To to show it to anyone. So like I, I don't rush my poems out out there, really. I try I try not to. Partly it's because I don't do that because I want to, I want to spend time with the poems and sort of really know what they are, like what what they're trying to tell me and what, um, you know, if I'm writing a poem and I know exactly what they mean, it's probably not a good poem, you know, it's 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 too constructed, it's too self conscious. Like I want it to have its own uh, mystery and, but I don't I don't want it to be too mysterious that it makes no sense and it and it's too personal that nobody else can connect to it and understand it. So, um, so I probably wait till pretty late in the process, I guess, to show it to Jessica too. Uh, but you know that the collection Our Cancers that came out two years ago, I remember sharing those with with Jessica pretty early in the process, and it was very um, cathartic, cathartic for both of us. You know, uh, a bit re-traumatizing probably, but cathartic as well. And um, so we pick and choose our moments. There's a play in the play collection that's coming out, which is, uh, it's really about, that's called The House in Scarsdale. And it was about 10 years ago when I started interviewing estranged family members to try to figure out why I was now the estranged, I had been disowned by my family. So I tracked down relatives that I hadn't seen, sometimes I'd never met, and interviewed them about our family. and And I wrote about it. But there is one short scene in that play that is derived from a fight between Jessica and I. And it comes into the play for a very specific reason, trying to, you know, write, trying to show um, a window into my own family, the one I'm living in now, you know. And I felt like I had to show a bit of that, sort of put myself on the line in the play and not just look at the family I grew up in in a judgmental way, but sort of look at my own family. Um, but but even then, that was very much a collaboration of kind of writing it with Jessica, uh, making sure it was the sort of thing she was okay with, that it, you know, that it was exposing, uh, maybe be, it was more exposing of me than of her, even though there's a character named Jessica in that scene, you know. Um, so 
but I feel so lucky that she's always been so open to that sort of thing. Yeah, that is a perfect, beautiful segue into what I wanted to ask you actually sure. about your plays. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read your words to you if that's okay. But in the preface to your trilogy of plays, you write, storytelling was an egress from reality, or more accurately, a strategy for telling the truth about myself and my family in a code my family could not decipher. Wearing the mask of fiction, I could expose secrets without taking full responsibility for it. Um, and that's, you, you know, talking about writing fiction before you transitioned into poetry and into drama um, and into memoir. But, um, you know, as a memoirist, are there fears that you still have, even though it seems like you've, you know, found this bravery, it may be in being disowned to, to finally write about your family in a way that is less conscious of uh, keeping some of those secrets or, or sort of um, really not, not paying attention to people's feelings, obviously, because I think it's, it's delicate, but um how do you negotiate between what you're what you feel compelled to confess about the people in your life mm. and how to sort of uh, have that ethical boundary, I guess, with yourself about yeah. what you might want to share or protect about those people? This is so I mean, this is exactly the subject of my lecture that I'm going to give here at Solani. Oh, okay. So I'd to thank you. For, and I'm still figuring it out. It's very much at the forefront yeah. um, of my mind. You know, and I think it's an ongoing question. I don't think anybody who writes autobiographically probably ever arrives at a place where they say, you know, I feel completely confident that I shared exactly the right things or the right amount of things about the right people. I mean, you know, up until the last moment proofing this memoir from Scarsdale, um, I was deleting some things that I felt uh, I didn't have the right to reveal about other people. Um, for the most part, I'm okay revealing a lot about myself. Like that's kind of, um, I don't know if it's an exhibitionistic streak or something, but I don't really, that, that first came up with my play about Paul Watson because that play is about me and Paul Watson. So I'm in that play. And many people said to me at the time when it was first produced, they said, well, how does it feel, you know, to see yourself up there on stage? And I, I, the honest answer was, it feels fine, you know. I don't, it doesn't bother me. We can cast a better-looking actor who's more, who's <laughs> has a nicer voice, and you know, it's it's an improvement. Um, but also because it, it 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 was a way to objectify myself and think of myself as a character. I felt free to exaggerate certain things about myself as long as I felt it felt true in in, in essence. Um, so so in terms of my Revealing too much about myself, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. And of course, that's easier because you, you can just trust your own internal comfort in that regard. Um, but there's certainly things with the memoir that, you know, people I hadn't thought about in 20 or 30 years, it occurred to me, oh, what if they read this? How would this make them feel? So then, then it became a question of, of how important is that fact or that experience to the story that I'm telling? Um and of course, you can change names and things like that. So, you know, they're not you're not really revealing too much. I think it, it, it's an important point about, you know, if you're disowned by your family and if you believe, as I do, that my childhood was an emotionally and verbally abusive childhood, it, it does free you up somewhat, you know, in terms of protecting, you know, protecting the abusers. I have a lot of sympathy or empathy for my parents in the sense that I believe they were 
dealing with a lot of untreated mental illness. I know my mother um, was raised with a lot of abuse in her household. So um, I, I, have a, I have a lot of uh, empathy, but I also felt like it was important to to tell the truth about that story, to, you know, uh, about what, what it's like to grow up, especially with, I mean, there's something very interesting to me, at least, about emotional and verbal abuse as opposed to physical and sexual abuse, um, because it can be perceived as so such an invisible form of abuse. All abuse, of course, can be repressed and suppressed and hidden, but emotional and verbal neglect, that sort of thing, um, it can be very hard for people, especially adult children of that type of abuse, for those adults to hold on to a, a firm sense of what happened and how it affected them, how it's affecting them now in the present. Um, so it was really important to me that I try to capture that experience of growing up in that household. Um, again, with as much, uh, you know, understanding, even forgiveness. Forgiveness is a word that gets thrown around, obviously, in such a kind of uh, reductive, easy, quote-unquote, religious way. And I don't necessarily mean it that way. I think of it more in terms of just understanding and and uh, empathy for their predicament. Um, but there was, you know, even though my parents had, like all parents, had their own challenges um, and their own psychologies, of course, there was always the mystery of of cruelty in my family. You know, there was an element of of sadistic abuse between parent and child. And, uh, and I just, I felt for 30 years that I needed to, um, be honest about that, you know, and again, to find meaning in that, may find beauty in that too. For me in the big picture, the beauty of it is being from Scarsdale, you know, leaving that place, feeling a certain amount of freedom from that abuse. Um, you know, even if it's not, uh, something that happens overnight, you know. Um, but, and it's been interesting to think, you know, even, even if you're writing about your abusers, it's been interesting to have moments where you think, oh, will this hurt their feelings? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's an interesting question as an artist or writer to have to confront that and to decide, well, am I just protecting my abusers out of the old dynamic of shame? And, uh, you know... But then there are certain, like I said, there are certain things that, that of course, I didn't write about because I didn't want it because, you know, it's not a book motivated by anger. It's a book motivated by love and desire to understand. Um, so that's kind of where it came back. I'm sure there are times in early drafts of the book where I wrote passages that were much more angry or what, you know, and what helped me was coming back to, again, that question of how can I understand them and understand myself and have empathy what it was like to be a child in that family. Yeah. Um, there's so many things that I, I just thought of when you were speaking. So something that came to mind, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but uh, the writer Lydia Yuknovich has a, a quote that I think about a lot that goes something like uh, forgiveness is accepting that everyone has their own story and giving it to them oh, basically um, that it's, yeah. And that of course is, is more complicated when, the story inside of someone is uh, maybe not in line with reality or is, is causing them to be cruel mm. to other people or um, is causing abuse. Nice. Um, but that, that's something that I, I think about a lot um, in navigating this idea about um, 
what to confess versus what to protect, who deserves protection and why. And you said at some point uh, that there are certain things that you cut because you felt like you didn't have the right to reveal mm -hmm. them. And I'm curious how, uh, where that line is for mm -hmm. you, maybe even just in like a recent, something you recently cut, how do you decide um, what stories you're allowed to own or not? Well, I mean, this is a, a, a sort of a smaller um, deletion from the memoir that's coming out. But I wanted to write about sort of, you know, kids that were bullied when I was in school um, because it was important to me in terms of how, as a kid, unconsciously, I related to how the bullied kids reminded me of my older brother who was suffering a lot and how I was trying to define myself by being the opposite of him. And, and I didn't bully kids, but I certainly um, didn't necessarily defend those kids, you know. So there are a couple passages in earlier drafts where I did write about those kids who were bullied. And at a certain point, I felt like I just didn't, I didn't need that attention to detail to make to make the same point to tell the same story um and it felt like i was perhaps perpetuating the harm that they suffered even if they would never read it they, they most likely never would but it just felt ethically or morally it made me a little too queasy um so pretty late in the game i said you know what i don't i don't need it in this in this book um i can write about my trauma but maybe I'm going to leave their trauma out of it, you know, um, even though, again, I disguised their names and I disguised certain facts, but it just didn't feel it just didn't feel um, just didn't feel right in that regard. So, yeah, I think and as a consequence, I think as a memoir, and I think this is still um, sort of faithful to my experience of growing up, it's, it's not very focused on my school experience, you know, my childhood the way I remember it now as a middle-aged man was one of claustrophobia and of being trapped in the house with abusive parents and mentally ill siblings. I'm one of six kids and none of us were doing too well. So, you know, it was Scarsdale for me is not so much a geographical place as a psychological, emotional place. Um, and uh, so that was another way in which it felt like, well, I don't need to go into so much detail about the trauma that some of my classmates were, were suffering. Yeah. Do you think that your family reads your work or, or, I mean, maybe you've heard from them that they do. Or... I do. I, I don't know if they do anymore. Um, and, you know, for years they, they disowned me. And again, they never officially used the word disowning. They just stopped um, talking to me, <laughs> I guess. They just cut me out of their lives uh, in 2006. So a long time ago. Um, and for many years, though, I would hear either through siblings I was in touch with a little bit or through other people or the occasional email or something, you know, um, evidence that they were, you know, reading my work. Um, there was a period maybe seven or eight years ago where an older sister of mine was seemed to take it upon herself to, to be the defender of the family honor and she would, she was, she was calling, I find this kind of humorous. She was calling um, my poetry publishers, even editors of literary journals oh my to, to let them know <laughs> that, that my poems were not accurate or they were not oh, true. And, and it was, 
sounds like it a was, nightmare. It kind of was. <laughs> I mean, most of these editors and publishers, I think, were kind of, um, you know, tickled by it. It was a little bit of drama, too, you know. Some of them, I think, were a little nervous, especially the book publishers, a little nervous, like, oh, is, could there be a lawsuit or something, you know. And uh, if one of, I'm going to put this, this is actually in my lecture here at Sewanee. My sister wrote to, so my uh, talk about being um, obsessed, my most confessional poetry collection is called Scarsdale. And it was published in the UK and in the US, but the, she, she got in touch with my UK publisher to say, um, you know, that, that she felt like my poems weren't accurate or, or were really dishonest, she thought. And she asked this publisher, she said, I wonder if any of the quote unquote great writers throughout history have ever had a sibling who's written a book from their point of view of the, of, you know, the great writer's childhood or the great writer's confessional poetry. And uh, the implication being, I guess, that if she wrote a collection of poetry, it would be very different than mine. And my publisher, he was tempted to write back to her, but he, I don't think he, he found it safer, I think, to avoid it. But he'd said to me, he said, well, you know, that sounds like a great idea, actually. And I would agree with that. Like, you know, that, that's even an element in my memoir play when I'm interviewing my older brother, the one who, who's, uh, who had struggled so much with depression and other um, issues. You know, when I finally interviewed him about some of my childhood memories, there are moments where, you know, he has very different memories. We, we, were bond we bonded about some of the big, important points, um, but very specific memories involving time and place and different people. Um, we, we had, you know, opposing viewpoints completely. Um, but I put that in the play because I, I welcomed that, uh, that dilemma, you know, that because it's, it's a memoir. It's about memory. Uh, it's about the meaning each of us takes from our experience and how that meaning is always changing and it's always a certain version of fiction to some degree, right? Unconsciously or not, we're always kind of you know, revising a narrative of who we are and why we are and what we've been through and what it meant. And, you know, um, so yeah, so for a while, my, my family were, were not too happy about it. I, th I mean, I even think, I don't know for sure, but I think the break with my family was because I was starting to write more autobiographically. I hadn't written, I hadn't had a play that was being produced around that time that was still fictional, but it was the closest thing. I'd come to something like memoir. It was set in my hometown and it was a character of a, a high school kid who was suffering from depression. And uh, so I think I'm sure on some level that was a factor in my parents wanting me out of their lives, you know, because it would, it would be too much truth, too, too revealing, what have you. Were your parents, um, f you know, frequent readers or creatives or anyone who would really uh, sort of like understand that literary space in the context of it? You know, my mother, again, my mother sort of was in the sense that she did, she did read books that felt that were literary. Um, she would mix that with, you know, bestsellers. She would read Danielle Steele and then, you know, also read Ann Tyler and, uh, you know, John Irving. She loved John Irving. Um, my father really was just straight ahead sci-fi, fantasy novels, paperbacks, you know, Westerns maybe. So he was not, he was not a literary type whatsoever. But my mother was in her own way. Uh, but she always said she was very conflicted. You know, she always felt like when I started reading and writing, and I try to talk to her about the books that were blowing my mind as a teenager. 
you know, a portrait of the artist as a young man or the sound and the fury. And, and she, she just had a problem with how dark and heavy these books were. And to me at the time, even I've sensed that really what she was having a problem with was the darkness inside her that she couldn't quite deal with, which was her own childhood and how she was physically abused by her mother. She had a schizophrenic brother who'd been institutionalized and, she had a lot of darkness that I don't think she could really um, process, you know. So she was conflicted in that way. She did give me from a very young age, and this is funny, at least to me, and it's in the memoir briefly, but her mother's maiden name is Anstey. And she's descended from an 18th century English poet named Christopher Anstey, who was a best-selling poet in his day. Uh, he wrote a book called The New... He lived in Bath in England, and he wrote a book called The New Bath Chronicles. No one reads him now, completely forgotten. He has a plaque in Westminster Abbey. He's not buried there, but he actually has a plaque there. Um, but he wrote this book called The New Bath Guide about uh, the Nouveau Riche coming to Bath to take uh, the water cure. Um, and it's about a specific family that were, they were suffering from a bout of chronic flatulence. So it's kind of like comic poetry that this guy wrote that was huge and my mom was very proud of that so we did have this kind of family myth that there was something literary some potential of, of literary nature in the family yeah that's so interesting and then when you sort of fulfilled that then that didn't uh quite work with their i guess ideas of that myth or or how it should be passed on right yeah exactly it was kind of an ironic thing that i was fulfilling it in a way um that they couldn't quite tolerate, you know. Well, um, I do want to ask you about your book, Survivor's Notebook, that's coming out this fall, just because I don't want to take up too much of your time today. Um, and I have so much that I want to ask you, but... No, please, this is a thank you, and thank you for being so, having such thoughtful oh, questions. This is thanks. Great. I mean, you're a very, uh, a very fun interview subject, uh, and you have a lot oh, of beautiful good. things to say. So I want to just sort of tell the, the listeners a little bit about Survivor's Notebook. So this is a collection of prose poems. Um, they almost sort of can read like vignettes, I find, when I, when I read through them. And uh, there are photos that are included throughout, um, almost like little postcards or snapshots of moments from a life. Um, and you talk in it about your cancer diagnosis, your wife's cancer diagnosis and treatment, um, both of your lives together in the past, uh, before you were married and in the present sort of recovering from your cancers. Um, and there are a lot of instances of being, what I, what I found in it was a lot of instances of being younger and almost feeling invincible while witnessing other tragedies, other close brushes with death, either with yourself or with people around you. And then reflecting on what you didn't know that you would have to experience someday. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how this book came together and um, how you see this maybe being an extension or even different from your last collection? I think it was your last collection, Our Cancers, right? Was it the last yeah. one? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they both books began very naturally and intuitively in the sense that Our Cancers were really written in the midst of both of our treatments over the course of a year and a half, revised extensively that's 101 poems and poetic fragments but i probably wrote hundreds of those during that time period um so a lot of it 
was of course shaped and revised and became something else. But at the time it was really an attempt to kind of chronicle the shattering experience of, you know, two medical catastrophes happening, um, overlapping, happening almost simultaneously, but overlapping. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with the loss of language, you know, the loss of, I mean, my, one of my theories of trauma, you know, is that trauma, um, changes, perhaps obliterates your sense of self. You know, who you thought you were before the trauma uh, is going to change. And part of your task, if you survive it, is to, to, to rewrite, to revise, to find a new story of who you are and how you've, what you've come through because of what you've come through. Um, but, you know, I did feel like I didn't necessarily have the language and things were coming to me and that's why they came to me in fragments, you know, or sometimes they almost felt like more like visions and the poems that feel more cohesive. Um, whereas, you know, once we finished with treatment and we were doing okay, there was the next challenge was how do you sort of return to normal? You know, how do you rejoin uh, the living in a certain sense, you know, you're no longer in purgatory or, or the bardo or whatever. How do you come back from the margins um, in good and bad ways? You know, you, of course, you can come back feeling like you have greater perspective about yourself and about life. Um, but that could be challenging in terms of what about life do you wish to engage with again? And what, what about life do you not wish to engage with again? And uh, so the, the prose poems evolved naturally, I think, again, in terms of just trying to find and naturally starting to find um, a more conversational tone. You know, I, I've, I wanted them to feel like I was just talking to you. You know, there's some variety. Some of the prose poems are much more poetic and, and abstract, but many of them are, are a lot closer to the way I'm speaking right now, you know. And um, so, you know, and, and again, it was the same experiences with our cancers in that these were, um, you know, memories that were occurring to me naturally, um, experiences that in the moment were suddenly seeming meaningful uh, and ought to be recorded in some sense, um, again, for myself, but hopefully maybe for somebody who, who wants or needs to read it because they're going through something kind of similar. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a very natural experience in that regard. Um, you know, it, I also I wanted to th I was thinking a lot about performance art and performance um, sort of monologists who uh, do in one person shows, tell stories, but often with a heightened sense of language. Um, so there's that element of it as well. That was more for me. I don't know if a reader would necessarily sense that. Um, but there were certain um, solo performance artists that were uh, important to me. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, again, I revise and I uh, obsessively because I'm clinically obsessive, but <laughs> obsessive compulsive, but you know, where the poems start are very unconscious. They're very, you know, for years I was sort of obsessed with spiritualism and the modern spiritualist church. And I wrote a, play years ago about the Fox sisters, um, 19th century, uh, spiritual mediums. And, you know, I've always felt like there's something similar to what writers do, maybe specifically poets 
and what uh, purported spiritual mediums do. I don't really care about the reality or veracity of that. I'm more interested in sort of the psychological experience of where that comes from, you know, whether it's the unconscious or, um, you know, that's always been where poetry lives for me and where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a, a channeling. Um, yeah, I've definitely had that experience with poetry. Mm-hmm. Can we take a brief segue to talk about ghosts? Is that okay? Please, of course. Okay. <laughs> because you mentioned spiritualism and this is actually, you know, I listened to another interview with you where you talked about, I think you come from an Irish Catholic background, yeah. right? But um, I believe the quote that I wrote down, I don't know who said this in what context, but that you quote, talk to dead people. <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about your relationship uh, either to spirituality, to ghosts, any, uh, you know, experiences that were formative for you in your interest or belief in ghosts? I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. So I don't know. It's very easy for me to to understand um, the quote unquote supernatural from a purely psychological point of view. So it kind of depends on the time of day, time of night, my mood, you know, how I will interpret certain events uh, and certain experiences. Um, I think for me, it, it does the most, the most compelling evidence of something supernatural for me it does have to do with the writing. Again, you know, the writing has often felt, um, you know, like it's coming from outside in some fashion. You know, that could be because I have a schizophrenic uncle and I have some latent schizophrenia or something. Who knows? You know, I don't I don't mind that. There's a story of um, Richard Elman, the biographer of W.B. Yeats, whose biography I read years ago and I loved. He was very skeptical of Yeats's, you know, interest in the occult and the supernatural. And he was interviewing Yeats's widow and she said to him, um, you don't believe? You don't believe in the spirit world? And he said, no, no. And she said, oh, I feel so sorry for you, you know. So it wasn't so much that, that I, I interpret that to mean like it's not that she's right and he's wrong. It's just that for someone like Yates and his wife, that his wife George, life was more rich because of that belief, you know. Um, so but I'm trying to think of a specific example. I mean, there are probably moments of that in the poems, for many years, I've gone to this place in Indiana, uh, New Harmony, which ho- hosts a theater conference. Uh, but I've been there off season where to be do, do a writers in residence type of experience. And some of the poems in this book, Survivor's Notebook, are set there. And they always put me in this house called the Poet's House. And it was built. Sorry, this is a huge tangent. But, no, please. I'm, I actively want this. <laughs> well, New Harmony is beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's in southern Indiana, su- southwestern Indiana. And it was twice it was a ut- utopian community in, in the uh, early 1800s, early mid 1800s. Uh, both times, the first time it was German religious fanatics of some brand who were too successful financially they made brooms and things like that that they moved they moved they said this is too easy or something and they moved and they sold their community that they built on the banks of the Wabash River to a Scottish industrialist who wanted to start a socialist utopia uh, a sort of a scientific secular utopia and that lasted about two years or something um, and then it just became a small town and but it has a fascinating history and uh, it was revitalized maybe 50 years ago 
by this woman, Jane Owen, who's the, who was the heiress of some Texas oil money. And she kind of brought this town back and, uh, you know, saved a lot of the original homes. And one of the original homes is called the Poet's House. I still don't know why it's called the Poet's House, but it's an 1810 or 20 frame house. And they put me there. And, uh, you know, I had, I remember having one of the poems in the book talks about having a vision of my daughter before she was born. And the vision was set in that house. And it felt like a ghostly visitation, but the ghost was of my future daughter, if that makes sense. So it wasn't your typical ghost story, but it was such a vivid um, image before I knew my wife was pregnant. I think even before we were sort of attempting to, but it felt like uh, an announcement. I think some people do talk about it as an announcement dream that some people, mothers and fathers may have. Um, And so it was very meaningful for me to come back in the year post-treatment and spend a few weeks in that house um, and to feel, um, you know, to feel like I was in touch with something hopeful, you know, so my my daughter being the most hopeful thing in my life, you know, and, uh, but, you know, part of the reason why I love New Harmony is because it does feel like a haunted town. If you go there, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, there's, there, you know, there's tons of churches and uh, religious sculpture and, um, you know, but you're, you're just so aware of the past, you know, and aware of people that came to a place like that with such, I mean, I've always been fascinated by people who believe, you know, they may believe strange things, they may believe delusional things. I don't really care. I'm fascinated by that, you know. Paul Watson, the war reporter, what drew me to him in the first place was not just that he'd been a war reporter. It's that literally he believed and still believes that he was being haunted by the the spirit of someone, of a U.S. Army ranger that was being desecrated in the streets of Mogadishu. He took a picture. That picture won the Pulitzer Prize in 1994. But right before he took that picture, he says he heard the voice of the soldier the dead soldiers speak to him and say, if you do this, I will own you forever. And he took that picture and he says he's, he's, you know, felt haunted by him. So I was fascinated by it. So I've always been drawn towards people who believe strange things. And it probably goes back to just my childhood again. You know, if you've got mentally ill parents who, you know, say they love you, but they're abusing you, you're already dealing with a belief system that doesn't quite make sense. So it makes sense to me that I would feel a compulsion to try to understand those people, you know? Yeah. That just sort of unlocked something for me. That's really interesting. Um, You know, thinking about Paul Watson and, you know, the ghost, it's like if something shapes your outlook and what you do with that insight uh, and drives your life so deeply, it almost doesn't matter if it's, you know, quote unquote, like objectively real or not. Right. Right. Exactly. Like I, I understood and understand and probably most of the time um, am comfortable with understanding Paul's experience purely in terms of psychology and post-traumatic stress disorder. And actually, he's the one who'll, who will insist more that, that there's something real involved in that experience in terms of it's interesting. He, he's an atheist, so he doesn't really believe in spirits per se. 
but he believes there's something going on with quantum physics or, you know, that that somehow explains the reality of that experience and the reality of a a spiritual um, connection to that soldier. Um, And again, I'm, I'm fine. I don't feel any need, you know, with the, in the house in Scarsdale, my memoir play, there's a psychic character that I went to a few times and I found him fascinating because I didn't really care if what he was doing was real or not. I was fascinated by the performance, by the truths that it could elicit from the relationship that we were having, if that makes sense. Um, You know, that was actually more interesting to me than the idea that there's perhaps something truly objectively supernatural or he was just he's a complete charlatan. You know, I think there's a middle ground that's much more interesting you know. Yeah, it's it, that intimacy of being with a psychic where they're really they're watching, they're they're intuiting, maybe like micro expression. And again, I'm very open to it's real or it's not, and it's fun to believe regardless. Right. But um, yeah, being seen by someone in that way is, I think, maybe part of the magic. Someone really trying to see you and to create that environment of intimacy yeah. with a stranger um, that can kind of feel like magic. I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like, at least in the theater, we talk about suspension of disbelief, right? So like, that's another way of saying like the the invocation of belief, like we're asking the audience to believe. So, you know, we're as a playwright, and it's probably true of any type of storyteller, you're, you're doing something not dissimilar to what a psychic does, I don't think. You know, you're, you're, you're conjuring a story that the audience can believe them, that the audience can see themselves in, can project themselves into and care about as if it were their own story. Um, So, yeah. So I don't know. I feel like I'm waffling about the ghost stuff, but... uh, That's okay. (laughs) Do you want a a harder-hitting question? (laughs) Sure, sure. So um, you spend a lot of time... You spent a lot of time writing about death. Um, Understandably, spent a lot of time thinking about death, I imagine, um, sort of facing potentially the brink of it. Uh, You know, you don't have to give like a... This doesn't have to be a final answer or some eloquent response, but just in this moment, on this day where we are, uh, what do you think happens when we die? Do you have any theories? I really don't. No, I, you know, I will say the experience of what my wife and I went through turned me somewhat away from an interest in uh, the quote unquote, quote, quote unquote, occult or the supernatural in the sense that that experience made me want to focus even more on the here and now, if that makes sense. And I feel just much more comfortable with a kind of wait and see attitude. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like previously I was interested in trying to figure something out about, you know, a spiritual dimension to life. And I felt like one of the lessons I took away from you know, our, our cancer experiences was, um, was that all that can wait. You know what I mean? That, that I really wanted to, now that might change, but for the last seven, six, seven years, I really have wanted to, um, uh, just engage with life as much as I can. Um, and yeah, so I don't, and I'm also just much more accepting of like, if there is something, beyond the immediate here and now, you know, experience of life, um, I'm much more comfortable accepting that that's beyond my comprehension. Like, I don't think there's any system of belief 
one system of belief that any humans have come up with that can kind of sum it up, you know, at least for me. Um, so I remain fascinated by faith and religion, and I have my own kind of sense of faith. Um, but it's a very, uh, um, it's a very relaxed uh, point of view on the question, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're saying what's happening right now is a little bit more exciting right now. Um, huh. Being here, experiencing your life. Yes, but you know, um, but people that I've lost, people that like for many people, I feel like they're still with me. I still sometimes speak to them uh, or even in some ways, maybe in my prayers, I speak to them or in my writing. I feel like I, my older brother, the one who... Um, I've written so much about. He actually passed away this past spring. And so, you know, what I'm writing now is I've been writing a lot of poetry about him. And I, I feel like I'm speaking with him in a way that feels, I suppose, supernatural or real uh, or, or religious or spiritual or something, you know. And I don't really care if that's just a trick of the mind, which it may be. Um it feels real and it it's helping. It helps me, you know, and maybe if the poems are any good one day, somebody reads them who's dealing with a loss of some kind, it'll, it'll help them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that is a perfect segue to the final question, which is uh, what are you working on? What's, what's up next for you? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the most sort of um, very new raw sort of thing that I've been writing. Um, I have a new play that's coming up um, at Jiva, this uh, theater in Rochester, New York, called Jiva Theater Center. Um, so that'll be my next new play that's been written. It was written a few years ago, kind of pre. I delivered it was a commissioned play that I delivered like a week before COVID hit. So I, you know, I gave it to the theater and said, "Hey, I've got this. The play's finished. Here it is." And then, of course, everything shut down, yeah. especially <laughs> the theater. You know. Um, so actually, it, I probably wrote it now several years ago, um, but now we're heading into the process of workshopping it and then, of course, rehearsing it. And so it'll change again. Uh, and that'll be a challenging play as it's a docudrama about Newtown and the Sandy Hook um, shooting, mm-hmm. um, which could be a whole other podcast to talk about that. <laughs> That's, um, but I don't think I could have written it again. I don't know how well I've pulled it off, but I don't think I could have written it without having written about Paul Watson, without perhaps the experience that my wife and I went through. Um, You know, writing with and about Paul Watson years ago really did awaken me more to a desire to write, especially my plays, uh, in a way that is more engaged uh, socially and politically. Um, So, um, so yeah, that's, that's coming up in the spring. And, um, yeah, other than that, it's just plays. And, uh, you know, I've been writing a lot of these lectures that I give here at Sewanee, or I have given many summers at Sewanee. Um, it was published, four of the lectures were published as a book two years ago, but it's kind of an ongoing project. The, the plan is that hopefully, you know, there'll be 10, uh, 10 essays. They're really kind of a memoir, writing, craft, uh, hybrid type of uh, book. And I've been working on that one, which is about a lot of the things we've been talking about here today. So that's, this has been helpful to me. Good. I'm so glad. To help me refocus as I get ready mm-hmm. to to uh, 
to read it to 300 people, you know? Yeah. And you said you're t- talking tonight about confessional writing. Is that your lecture for tonight? It's it's not, not tonight. It's going to be next week, I think. I forget which day. Um, but yeah, it's about, conf- it starts with confessional poets, but it's really about just the idea of telling true stories, you know, and what that means, the sort of the challenges of it and the, and the, the benefits of it and this, the necessity for it. Um, and uh, so because I'm a poet and a playwright and nonfiction, it kind of, um, I talk about all the genres, I guess. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I've been in such a autobiographical phase now for a while. I thought it was time to try to get my head around why, mm-hmm. why I've been doing that. Why do you think that is? Not to spoil your lectures, of course, but yeah. is there a, a reason that you've arrived at? I think, I mean, again, you know, the, the, the lecture begins with my brother's suicide attempt and my discovery of specifically Anne Sexton and then Sylvia Plath and Robert Lowell. And, you know, so to some degree, trauma and confession is kind of baked into my aesthetic, you know, my reasons for wanting to write, you know, wanting to connect. Because when that happened with my brother and I was 12 years old, and the family was not speaking about it. You know, I felt like many kids in a traumatic circumstance, I felt completely isolated. So to find on a shelf a book of poems that spoke the ugly but beautiful truth, simultaneously ugly and beautiful, like that that saved me, you know, absolutely saved me emotionally and psychologically. And um, I just don't think that's ever left. And I think when I was disowned by my family, it brought me, it sort of brought me back to that place. So I was, that's when I started as an adult to really write in an autobiographical confessional uh, manner. Um, Not all the time. And I don't necessarily think I'll always do that, but that's kind of um, what brought me back there. Um, So yeah, it just seems very central to to who I am and, and why I write. All right, that was Aaron Slaughter's conversation with Dan O'Brien. You can check out Dan O'Brien's poetry collection, which came out today, The Survivor's Notebook from Anchor Books. And in just over a week from Dalkey Archive Press, you'll be able to get From Scarsdale, A Childhood, and the collection of plays, True Story, a trilogy. And you can check out Aaron Slaughter's two most recent books, the short story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us, and the poetry collection, The Sour Festival, wherever you buy books. And if you'd like to check out our books over at Autofocus, you can do that at autofocuslit.com books. It's a great way to support the podcast. And also where you can find that new t-shirt I mentioned earlier. And if you want to do a little more listening today, and you want to hear what Erin Slaughter has to say, you can check out my interview with her. That was episode 57. And if you're really bored... You can go rate this podcast on whatever app you're using. Okay.
That's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.